According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Turn to Luke chapter 7 this morning. Luke chapter 7. We move on to episode number 22 in the Galilean ministry. Event 22 in the Galilean ministry, a sinful woman anoints Jesus. We've, she's actually been on hold for an extra couple of weeks because episode 21 uh, lingered a bit. And uh, not that I'm complaining. I, I thought it was very important for us to spend the time on the material there dealing with volition, dealing with sovereignty, dealing with issues that have caused believers for centuries to ponder and, and try to uh, try to wrestle with some of those particular issues. Hard for us and with our finite perspective in some cases to, uh, to reconcile some of those matters. But hopefully the approach we took dealing with the what-ifs will uh, was a benefit, will continue to be a benefit as you uh, continue to ponder some of those things that we were dealing with. The fact that God knows all of the should-haves, the would-haves, the could-haves. He knows what would have happened if something else had been different. And uh, and that's very interesting, particularly because of this episode this morning. We're going to look at a Pharisee, a rascal here by the name of Simon. And he has some opinions, and he's dead wrong. But he's got some thoughts and some opinions, and he's coming to a logical conclusion and he uses the very same language we had in our previous uh, uh, situations of uh, if and because he's not, he would have or could have. And he's, he's flat out wrong. He's wrong in his first assumption and therefore his logic is flawed. And he's wrong in his second conclusion. And he's wrong in the final conclusion because of a, uh, a preconceived notion or what we would call a prejudice that flaws his logic to begin with. And so I'm glad that we spent the time, the extra time in the past couple of sessions dealing with those what-ifs because it reminds us that only God is capable of handling all of the, uh, well, if this happens, then that would have happened. Or if he would have known this, then he would have known that. Uh, human beings think we can put those plans together, but we can't. It takes omniscience to do that, and as such, only God is qualified. So you'll see what I mean here as we get going. Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through the end of the chapter, 36 through 50. Before we begin, let's take time for silent prayer and ask the Father to bless our study. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do humble ourselves under the authority of your word, and we thank you for the privilege of assembling together this morning. We do ask for your hand of blessing upon our gathering upon our study, praying for distractions to be set aside and praying for concentration upon the material. And Father, we do thank you for your faithfulness to guide us in the truth, to guide us in all things. We uh, ask this morning that you would provide for us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to understand. And we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, Luke chapter 7. In the uh, context of this chapter, it's, uh, it's quite remarkable because it follows an episode from two episodes ago. If you'll notice where verse 35 says, Yet wisdom is vindicated by her children. And this wrapped up the deal where uh, John the Baptist had sent messengers to Christ saying, Are you the coming one or should we expect another? Is there a second coming one along the way? And we, we dealt significantly with his question, why it was not a weak faith question, but actually a very strong faith question. And then when, the, when those messengers departed to go back to John, 
then the Lord had a message of rebuke for those immediate listeners who uh, were simply following various teachers for the entertainment value or for the latest fad or the latest craze. And, uh, and yet they were, never, uh, they were never satisfied. I called them the spoiled brats because John wouldn't dance to their tune and Jesus wouldn't dance to their tune. And so we, we looked at some of those issues there in contrasting Jesus with John in this part of, of Luke. Now, Luke did not go on to describe the denunciation of the cities. We had to go to Matthew to get that. And so to keep it chronologically, we've actually been out of Luke 7 now for a little bit. But in Luke's account, this episode immediately follows the uh, the message there where he says wisdom is vindicated by all of her children. And it really does demonstrate, this next episode here with the sinful woman and with the Pharisee, it really illustrates with, with these two people exactly what Jesus was saying about uh, the, the, the spoiled brats, the children in the marketplace, that they think they can, uh, they can be the fiddler and make everybody else dance to their tune. And that's not the case. So uh, this episode here, I think, will spell that out also. Let's read through it. It says in verse 36, Luke 7:36. Now one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him. And he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. The language in the Greek here is all very vivid in the sense that it's an imperfect tense. That uh, when it says he was requesting him to dine. In other words, this was over time again and again and again he kept saying when can you come over when can you come over when can you come over and then the occasion came when christ could take up the the invitation and uh, and then he entered into the pharisee's house and reclined and then reclined is also in an imperfect tense demonstrating that this is uh taking place over time and it may be that uh, this was not just simply a single meal but this was actually, the, the request had been repeated, 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 and then finally the acceptance. And this may be uh, over a period of time. If, if the Lord agreed to come, say, uh, every night for a week or something like that, it would be very common as, a, as an element of hospitality and as an element of a teaching when a respected rabbi would be brought in. Uh, today we'd call them pastor's conferences. You know, we'd get a guy like George Meisinger, bring him in for a week, and then we put the word out, by the way, this respected pastor's in town and you want to... You know, if you're tired of the same old boring pastor you're usually stuck with, come and hear Pastor Meisinger and we'll get him for a whole week. Well, I think the vividness of the language really helps to uh, unfold that, that uh, the request was a standing one. It had been in place for some time. And then when it was accepted, uh, the reclining at the table was either for a prolonged meal on one night or uh, multiple meals, prolonged events over several nights. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner, again, prolonged period of time. This characterized her life. There was a woman in the city who was a sinner, and when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with perfume. And when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if, and here we're going to get to that if again, like we've been dealing with, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. Shock and scandal. Obviously, uh, no legitimate prophet would allow such a sinner to come into such proximity with his holiness, or he would be end up then defiled, at least according to the Pharisee uh, standard of total holiness. So he comes to this conclusion. We'll deal with this here at length this morning. 
And Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher. And then he begins to tell a parable. And it's a parable that has only one answer. It's an obvious answer. You don't have to be a uh, college-educated Pharisee to figure it out. Anyone can figure out what the answer is. And Jesus says, you're exactly right. Now, apply it to your legalism and your scorn for this woman. So Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher. A moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? And Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have judged correctly. So turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? Say, you got the answer right, but you missed the point. So let me point it out to you now. Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears. And wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but since she, since the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. See, every area where he was lacking or deficient in his responsibility as the host under hospitality and just normal manners, uh, he was lacking, but she was uh, abundant, abounding in, in her grace and in her love. For this reason, I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. Then he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. I'll read the final verses here since I read this far anyway. He said to her, your sins have been forgiven. Those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this man or who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. All right, so we've got 15 verses to deal with here in this episode. It is fairly straightforward. As a matter of fact, um, one of the early fathers, or maybe it was one of the early popes, it was, uh, oh, Gregory. St. Gregory said that this was a text that requires no explanation. <laughs> he said, just read it. It, it preaches itself in its uh, simplicity and in its beauty. Well, with all due respect, I'll do some instruction and some teaching on it. And uh, we're going to gain a total of uh, seven points of study here in this text and, uh, and break it down for you. But I think the basic story itself is pretty, pretty simple. The, the dinner invitation, he, he comes, the, this woman that then comes in. And some of the culture, though, may escape us. So we'll have some words to say about the culture. Uh, I'm going to do a little bit of quoting from some material here to... Uh, make us aware of what the, the cultural elements are. In, in our mind, it's, it's awkward because if I invite a person to my home for, for a meal, then they have the invitation. Nobody else has the invitation, see? And it would be, it would be bizarre if, if I extend an invitation to the Blairs and then the Dowds and the Carnegies and, and the Beverages and Bryans, they just kind of show up anyway because they heard that I had an invitation extended to the Blairs. And they would just show up anyway and then act as observers or eavesdroppers. It would be awkward in our culture, but it was very normal in their culture, particularly when that the, the, the one invited was, was very noteworthy. He was a rabbi, see. And so they wouldn't be expected. Uh, the host wouldn't have to feed them, wouldn't have to provide anything for them, but they would certainly be welcome to come in uh, like an outer courtyard or stand by the wall and just kind of listen and, uh, and uh, observe uh, the teaching that would then take place. I'll spell that out here for you also. 
First of all, under point one, the affair. What was the affair? The event, the activity. I first titled this The Event or The Occasion. I believe in my first draft it was The Occasion. Until I noticed that points two, three, four, and five all have started with A. <laughs> so I went back and said, okay, we'll call this one The Affair. That way we can have every point in the outline start with A. A dinner party. A dinner party presents an opportunity for evangelism. One of the things we're really trying to stress in our Sunday night ministry workshop is that opportunities for service come somewhere else in most cases. You come to church to be trained. You come to church to be equipped. You come to church to be prepared, motivated, encouraged. But your work of service is out there in your workplace, in your neighborhood, in your family, in your, uh, among your coworkers or whoever, whatever field of service the Lord puts you into, particularly if yours is the evangelism gift and the, edific- and the, uh, the ministry of evangelism. If you're an evangelist, you might start to find around here that the pickings are getting a little slim because hopefully <laughs> we're saved around here, right? You know, McGee said he never assumed 100%. Uh, and so I guess I don't want to assume 100%, but I'd like to think that close to that are, are born-again believers in Jesus Christ. That is a, that, well, it's a requirement for membership, and it's an expectation, I think, that we would have around here. Not every church makes salvation a requirement for membership, but we do. We're trying to emphasize the fact that there are opportunities that will present themselves. And so for Jesus Christ... Uh, he recognized that this dinner party presented just such an opportunity. And the woman that came in provided the, the trigger, provided the, uh, the uh, visual aid, as it were, the, the, the circumstance that would then launch the conversation. I call them triggers. I have prayer triggers and, and evangelism triggers. And you never know what might present a trigger for uh, a witnessing opportunity. Well, in this case, it was a dinner party. Now, this is the first of three meal invitations that bring Jesus into conflict with the Pharisees. I found three. Somebody else said two. And I think the difference might be that only two of them are dinners. The other one might be a lunch. Who knows? But here in Luke 7, it's, uh, it's an invitation to come in and recline. And that's a meal according to the, the Greco-Roman custom where, you know, we're accustomed to sitting in a chair rather vertically, rather upright with a table and silverware and all that. They, their couches were designed to recline to where you had your left hand up on the, on the table there as you're laying on your side and maybe you could support your head with your hand, that kind of thing. And as you're kind of casual about it, then your right hand was free. You know, you can just kind of reach over to the table. It was a low coffee table kind of thing. It couldn't have been a big high table. And, and, uh, by the way, that was one of the features of Passion of the Christ. It was a bit humorous when Mary couldn't figure out why Jesus was building a table so high where you sit at it like that, see, because typically you would lay like this. Anyway, um, the nature of it. Another one comes in chapter 11. You can just look there very quickly. We'll get to each of these in turn, of course, rapture pending. Uh, verses 37 through 54. When he had spoken, a Pharisee asked him to have lunch with him. Okay, so this here's a lunch date rather than a dinner. That's probably why some of the quotes find two rather than find three. And on this one, uh, they get all upset because he doesn't go through a ceremonial uh, ritual cleansing process. So we'll deal with that. And then in chapter 14, they get upset. Um, 
He's in the house of one of the leaders of the Pharisees on the Sabbath, eat bread, and they were watching him closely. And uh, here's a man suffering from a dropsy. And so he, he just turns it right at them. He doesn't even give them a chance to be critical after the fact. He puts it right to them ahead of time and says, all right, is this going to be right or wrong? <laughs> and they can't make an answer. They just stay silent. So he heals the man, and then they just get in a frothing uh, fit after that. So three meals, each one rather uh, confrontational, wouldn't you say? We'll deal with this one first here this morning. I'll read a citation here. This is from Pentecost, J.D. Pentecost, the parables of Jesus. Christ had been invited by a Pharisee to have dinner at his home, but the host's attitude was condescending. As the guests ate the meal, a woman whose sinful life was well known entered the dining area. This would not have been unusual in a culture in which hospitality was considered a virtue, especially if the guests were considered inferior to the host. For such an occasion as this, a Pharisee would set the table in an open place, perhaps in the courtyard. Notice, by the way, I'll back up, especially if the guest were considered inferior to the host. Now, if the Pharisee had someone he considered superior to him, then uh, he, he would not have his outer gate open. He would not say if he was hosting Herod or Pontius Pilate or some high dignitary, then he would be a closed door affair and he wouldn't want to inconvenience the, uh, the, the more honored guest with these stragglers. All right. But if the guest was deemed less honorable, then the host was already doing a favor by bringing the guest in in the first place. So he was already basically doing Jesus a favor by having him in his home. In other words, Jesus should be honored to be in this Pharisee's home. And so since the Pharisee was already being gracious and generous to an undeserving, you know, kind of a Galilean hick rabbi carpenter kid, he uh, he opens his home there and then he goes ahead and he opens the gates so that other passersby might walk in. And the point being is that the, the bystanders could then observe how gracious this Pharisee was. How lavish was his banquet? How how well uh, apportioned was his table? What fine wine he was serving? How many how many attendants were on hand? And what a gala it must have been! So, this would not have been unusual in a culture in which hospitality was considered a virtue, especially if the guests were considered inferior to the host. And so clearly, that's the attitude here. For such an occasion as this, a Pharisee would set the table in an open place, perhaps in the courtyard. The host would leave open the front gate so that passers-by might not only observe the hospitality of the host, but even enter the courtyard to view the food that the host had provided for the guests. The more sumptuous the provision of the Pharisee, the more honor that would be heaped on that one as a host. As This is the whole bragging about how wonderful we are. Approach. Thus the custom of that day made it possible for this sinful woman to come into the place where Christ was reclining at the meal. However... This woman did not come to observe, but to pay homage to the Lord. See, she had no interest in, in viewing the Pharisee and seeing how, uh, you know, how holy he might be. She had one purpose, and that was to approach Jesus Christ. She brought with her an alabaster jar of perfume. This very costly ointment possibly was purchased with her ill-gotten gains. As such, think the Pharisee would accept it as an appropriate gift? All right. There's uh, stories there that uh, of other similar circumstances when uh, a particular madam of a particular establishment in a particular location 
catch a can in Alaska if I have a story, right? Anyway, she gets saved. And so she shuts down her business. And she brings a pretty sizable offering to the church. The deacons don't want to take it. Because you know how she made that money. You know where that money came from. Say, Pastor uh, tore into those deacons like you wouldn't believe and said, you need to learn some things about grace. <laughs> this is a tremendous opportunity here. And if, uh, you know, anyway, this very costly woman possibly was purchased with her ill-gotten gains. The woman showed the attitude of her heart toward Christ by standing at his feet, which he... Uh, would have extended away from the table in his reclining position. Yeah, if you're kind of leaned back on your left with your head propped up like that and you're kind of stretched out on the couch, then you bend your knees back and they're kind of tucked behind you there away from the table. The woman began to bathe his feet with her tears. This was her way of telling Christ that she had repented. Again, I'm quoting from from uh, Pentecost. This, these may not have been my exact words, but these were the terms he used. Uh, she was acknowledging her sinfulness and confessing her need of forgiveness from sin. Since the Messiah was the one who was to put away sin, Isaiah 53.6 and Zechariah 13.1, the woman's tears not only were a sign of her sinfulness, but of her faith in Christ as the Messiah. And faith is the key. And that's what Christ gets at here in this text in verse 50. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This passage is not describing any kind of salvation by works or merit or anything deserving on her part. It wasn't her, her actions that earned her the forgiveness. It was by faith. The actions were the evidence of the faith. And that will be spelled out as well. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So after uh, wetting his feet with the abundance of her tears, she used her hair as a towel and dried his feet. Then she showed her affection for Christ by kissing his feet. This suggests that she was confident that she already had received his forgiveness. She showed her adoration for his person by pouring perfume from the alabaster jar on his feet. All right. So that kind of sets the stage. That was the affair for this whole episode. Now, the actors, and her point two, there's two primary characters in this drama, almost as vividly different as in other chapters. In Luke, by the way, Luke's very good for these uh, character contrasts, the rich man and Lazarus, uh, the tax collector and the Pharisee that have the contrasting prayer life, um, other episodes, the uh, the the, the older brother or the prodigal son. Luke is great for presenting us with these character sketch contrasts. And so here's, here's the one here. We've got two of them. Simon the Pharisee. Simon the Pharisee. One out of nine New Testament Simons. So if you need a scorecard to keep your Simon straight, it's one of the more challenging ones you could do. I think the only one tougher than keeping your Simon straight in the New Testament, Mary. Keeping your Marys straight in the New Testament. There are so many Marys. But there are nine New Testament Simons. I think there's another five Old Testament Simons and intertestamental Simons. And then there's three post-New Testament Simons in the early church. We had the Tanner, Simon the Tanner in Sunday night in the book of Acts. There's also a magician that, that uh, you deal with there in the book of Acts. Here's Simon the Pharisee. Peter was a Simon before he got the name Peter. Total of nine New Testament Simons. Simon the uh, the Zealot. Simon, um, oh, there's more. Although this particular Simon is found nowhere else other than Luke chapter 7, only this episode here. 
He is not elsewhere mentioned. No firm information apart from this text, although this hasn't stopped a number of people from trying to speculate and guess and try to plug him into some other uh, Simon stories. There's a, there's a leper named Simon where, uh, just before the crucifixion where Mary, the sister of Lazarus, comes in and anoints the Lord. And sometimes people get that episode confused with this episode. Uh, according to Edersheim, possibly the most common Jewish name of this time was Simon. And there's some interesting studies that go into that. I won't bore you with that today. But why would Simon become such a popular name in the first century? Simeon was kind of, Simeon's the Old Testament form of it. It was kind of an obscure tribe. Uh, certainly nothing like Judah or Levi or any of the more dominant tribes. Simeon was pretty, uh, was pretty obscure. But it, what, what happened, though, is in between the Old Testament and the New Testament during the Maccabean era, you had this golden age of the Hasmonean dynasty that Jewish people looked at as being oh so wonderful. And the, 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 really, the, there were others, there were brothers that preceded him, but Simon, the brother of Judas Maccabeus, Simon was the, the great priest king that, that launched this dynasty. And so, uh, anyway, there was a lot of attachment to Simon. I think the name because of uh, of that influence. Now the second character is this woman. We don't know her name, which I find interesting. This text does not say. Um, some old traditions, the, the Roman Church very early pegged this as Mary Magdalene, but there's no reason for that. She's just simply called a sinner, a woman in the city who was a sinner. A woman in the city who was a sinner. That's all we're told about her. In verse uh, 37, there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. Some manuscripts kind of reorder the words on that a little bit. There was a woman who in the city was a sinner. As if she wasn't a sinner outside of the city. This was the place of her sinfulness, as it were. By the way... Isn't everybody a sinner? <laughs> right? So what does it mean when the, when the Jews call somebody a sinner? Right. It means that they are, uh, we dealt with this in, the, in event number 10, the call of Matthew. Uh, a sinner is someone who, uh, we, we're all sinners. All of sin have fallen short of the glory of God. But in the, in the Jewish way of looking at things in this time, uh, a sinner was someone who didn't even try who never even, who was just an outcast, not a part of the Pharisees' religion, not a part of temple worship, not a part, and basically an unobservant Jew. Uh, they were racially Jewish, but they didn't observe the feast, they didn't observe the ceremonies, they didn't observe the, the, the Passover, they didn't observe any of that. And mostly because they weren't qualified. You know, Simon the Tanner, for example, he would never be ceremonially pure, because day by day by day, his business always put him in touch with carcasses, with bodies. And so he would never be ceremonially pure. A tax collector would never be ceremonially pure. There were just certain professions, uh, certain people, and, and, and just their, their day-to-day life, they would never measure up. They would never partake. See, And since the external ritual was everything to these guys, they were just outcasts. They were sinners. They were non-observant Jews. See, 
which we found out very quickly, didn't matter in the sense when, when Lord called Matthew. There's Levi sitting in the tax collector booth. He said, follow me. Follow him immediately. Born again believer in Jesus Christ. Regenerate born again believer. Didn't measure up to the Pharisee standard. He was a sinner. So we had some study on that, and, uh, and it applies here, and it applies everywhere, that this term is employed in a Jewish context in the Gospels. All right? So she was a sinner. Now, for a woman to be called a sinner, uh, it pretty well pegged what she was doing. All right? It's pretty well clear that she's involved in prostitution. That's, it's really, I, I suppose there's other walks of life that she could be engaged in. Um, but unlike the men where, where there was maybe a, a career path that like the tanner or the tax collector or, or something, uh, for a woman to, to gain this title, it, it just meant she was non-observant and probably because of her method of, of income. And, uh, but it doesn't actually say, it doesn't use the term prostitute here. That's just kind of, we read into it. It's uh, a natural assumption to make, but I'm open to, uh, to, uh, being proven wrong. If, uh, when we get to heaven and we get to meet this lady, if, uh, it turns out that that was not her line of work. See, it doesn't really matter anyway what her line of work was. She's saved by grace and, uh, and the faith that she expresses there in verse 50, I think, puts an end to all of that. Now. Those are the characters. So we got the act, we got the uh, the affair, we got the actors. Let's look at the anointed under point three. What did she actually do in terms of her external deeds that reflected the fact that she had the internal faith? What did she actually do? Verses thirty-seven through thirty-eight. And, and it's interesting how this story just launches. It's so short to tell. It doesn't take long to tell this story. You introduce the Pharisee in verse 36. You introduce the sinner in verse 37. And what's she doing? Well, 37 to 38, here's what she's doing. And then the Pharisee's condemnation in verse 39. So it's a real short story. So, the woman in the city who was a sinner, and when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house... She brought an alabaster vial of perfume. Now, how long did that take? How long did it take for her to learn what was going on in that house? See, well, you know, we don't know. Text doesn't say. But if if the Lord was there, say, over a series of nights, then it would have been perhaps more natural for her, you know, on some subsequent night to realize that not only was the Lord there, but He was there for a series of nights and so forth. Uh, but she did learn. And she responded to what she learned. And she brought uh, an alabaster vial of perfume. And that's, the alabaster is, uh, is a soft stone uh, vial, a container that would help to preserve the uh, aroma, uh, aromatic uh, qualities of the, of the uh, substance there, the perfume. All right, let's, let's break it down. First of all, the sinner learned where the Savior could be found. The sinner learned where the Savior could be found. That's the first step. the first step in this process but it's the first step in any evangelism process the sinner learned where the savior could be found some of your evangelism may not seem to be uh, effective you may seem to not be getting anywhere but it may be that your witness your testimony is simply some of the early stages that's doing nothing more than letting the sinner know where the savior can be found 
And they may listen to nothing more beyond that. Other than the fact that that you've testified to salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And they may not respond. This may not yet be the time where the, uh, the, uh, the, the conviction is taking place, where the drawing is taking place, where the Father's grace is, is preparing that sinner to respond. And so they're not responding, because until that happens, they can't respond. But you're still supplying the information. And that information will be built upon by the next person that supplies information. And that information will be built upon by the next person that supplies information. Realizing, of course, that we're not the ones doing the work anyway. We're simply the tools. And it may be over a lengthy period of time when uh, this whole process comes together. So the sinner learned where the Savior could be found. People don't like this. They don't like the fact that there's one way. (laughs) That it's exclusive. Where Jesus Christ says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one cometh unto the Father but by me. You mean I have to go there, and if I don't go there, I don't get in? Yeah. You don't go to Christ. It's through Christ his entrance to the Father. So she learned where the Savior could be found. Secondly, the sinner came to the Savior. And she did so with a costly gift. She did so with a costly gift. Now here is where the works for salvation crowd gets it wrong. Because she didn't bring the gift in order to earn the forgiveness. She brought the gift in response to the forgiveness she had received. She brought the gift as a response. You and I ought to be responding to the grace that is bestowed upon us. It's the whole difference between law and grace. Under law, you serve hoping to earn and deserve. Under grace, you don't earn or deserve. You're given up front and then you respond accordingly. We walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which we've been called. See? So the sinner came to the Savior with a costly gift. Not to earn the forgiveness in response to the forgiveness. Correctly prioritizing earthly and heavenly values. Correctly prioritizing earthly and heavenly values. As Paul told the Corinthians, if we, I think it was the Corinthians, it might have been the Galatians, if we uh, sowed spiritual things among you, is it too much to ask that we reap earthly things from you? See? That's why supporting the ministry of the Word of God is, is a no-brainer. The, 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 the one teaching the Word of God is providing something that's eternal. The price of which is far above rubies, something that's going to last for, for all eternity. So, in exchange or in return, in response, really, to then bless that, that Bible teacher with earthly things, there's no comparison. How, how, how foolish, how ridiculous. See, of course, I'm preaching to the choir. Austin Bible Church is very gracious and very much understands the blessing of providing uh, secular funds for their, uh, their pastor. Correctly prioritizing earthly and heavenly values. So what if it's costly? Think about what she just received. (laughs) You know? She she now has eternal life. Recognition that this is indeed the the anointed one, the, the Messiah. And so for her to then anoint him is only appropriate. 
because he is the anointed one. She has identified her Mashiach, her Messiah, her Christ. She knows that this promised seed of the woman that is going to remove the sin of the world, she's looking at him. She found out where he could be, went and found him, and that's him. See? And so this jar of costly perfume, think about it. What else is she going to do with it? After tonight, after this very night here of this episode, what else is she going to do with it? She's saving it for special occasions. You think she's going to continue in this line of work? What is this woman going to do? So she has the correct prioritizing. Thirdly, the sinner observed an opportunity for service to the Savior. The sinner observed an opportunity for service. One of the big indicators of the reality of faith is that there are then works that are motivated and prompted and, and a desire for service. It's not just simply somebody that looks at salvation as fire insurance, you know, or the eternal life insurance kind of thing. I don't want to go to heaven when I die. I, mean, I don't want to go to hell when I die. So I want to be saved. But, you know, don't bother me with too much beyond that. Certainly don't expect me to do anything here on this earth. I'm too busy having fun serving myself. Well, that, that attitude leads one to wonder if truly there was a, a regeneration that took place. See, do you not love? Are you not being motivated? Is there no motivational virtue that then drive your functional virtue to, to motivate you to bear that kind of fruit? Well, in her case, there was. Not in the Pharisee's case, we should point out. We'll get to him here shortly. But in her case, there was. And that desire to serve and observing the opportunity to serve. And, and she comes and she observes the, uh, the, the, the filthy conditions of, of his feet. Just by virtue of the fact that, uh, you know, there's dirt roads everywhere you go. And you're wearing, you're wearing you know, we call them flip-flops today. You're wearing sandals. You're wearing uh, just a strap of leather under your, the soles of your feet with a, with a thong kind of strap that goes across the top of your feet that straps it down. It's a dirty process walking from Capernaum to Nain to Nazareth to wherever it is. We don't even know what city this place is. All right? And so the host who brought him in did not wash his feet. See? Because remember, the host views this as a, as a hospitality part on his part. He's doing Christ a favor. Uh, Jesus doesn't even deserve to be in his home, but he's you know, at least letting him come in and have a meal. So she looks down, she sees his feet and realizes that there's a service that could be done here. All right. Nothing inappropriate about it. Nothing. Uh, some people try to view this as an enticement kind of thing. Stupid. No enticement thing here. She's not looking for another customer. All right. She's worshiping. She's serving out of love. And that's not my opinion. That's Christ's statement when he describes the. Uh, the forgiveness, appreciation for forgiveness, and then the love that motivates the action. As she says here, it's, she's been forgiven much, and she, has, she loves much, as this passage describes. I like what Wiest did with this. Kenneth Wiest, which I'll give you under D, Wiest translation,
Now a certain one of the Pharisees was asking him to dine with him. And having come into the home of the Pharisee, he reclined at the dinner table. And behold, there was a woman of the city who was in character a sinner stained with vice. And having come to know that he was taking dinner in the home of the Pharisee, having brought an alabaster cruce of fragrant ointment, she stood behind him beside his feet, weeping audibly. With her tears falling like rain, she began to be wetting his feet, and she dried them with the hairs of her head, and she kissed his feet tenderly again and again, and began applying the fragrant ointment. Kenneth Wiest. What Wiest does, he draws out every, this passage, by the way, this is a great passage for probably second-year Greek students because of the participles that are here, the imperfect and the aorist and the, the, uh, the other things. And you're left wondering, well, where's the verb? Well, began applying the fragrant ointment. Everything else is kind of preparatory to that, from coming in and seeing and learning and beholding and weeping. And she had an intention, but then just broke down in the tears and started weeping. And then uh, realizing that she's getting his feet soaking wet with her weeping, then she... Dries his feet and all the rest. Anyway, I enjoyed that translation and wanted to give that to you. All right. We have the uh, the anointed. We also have the annoyed. The annoyed. You know, some people get offended over the silliest things. And uh makes you wonder what the thinking was. You know, I think the commentators are interesting on this because they pick up on all these clues and they think that this is a huge honor. The Pharisee's having him into his home and he's showing him all this honor. No, that's not consistent with these other verses. You know, the fact that there was no water for his feet, uh, there was no anointing, there was no kiss, there was no honor here. The Pharisee was honoring himself, thinking that he was doing Jesus a favor. He, was, he uh, had, had practically no love because in his mind he had practically no need for forgiveness. He's a good guy. He's moral. He's pleasing to God. And that's the contrast. So now he, he, he draws very annoyed in this. Now, the problem is, is because the thinking is flawed. We've taught so many times that, that, that grace orientation is, is important because without it, with pride, with arrogance, with legalism, your whole thinking process is flawed, it's colored. You're, you're viewing your circumstances and details of life with that prism, and you, and you have a skewed view of things. This Pharisee illustrates that. So here in verse 39, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, saw what? Saw everything in verses 37 and 38. He said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know. And he said to himself, he didn't speak it out, but he said it to himself. If this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is. My question is, how does the Pharisee know who and what sort of person this woman is? I'm just asking, all right? I'm not going to be as uh, explicit as uh, some. I don't remember if it was Edersheim or if it was Schaff, but one of those men absolutely disparaged this Pharisee is probably one of her biggest customers. All right? I'm not going to go that far. But he certainly knows who she is. I'm going to agree with McGee on this point that he would have had no, he was too legalistic to have anything to do with her. His, his uh, uh, the Pharisee's sin pattern isn't the lascivious sin pattern. It's the ascetic sin pattern. 
the prideful, long, snooty nose looking down on everybody else. This guy was so uh, snooty, he probably was one of those uh, 1 Corinthians 8 crowd that even abstained within his own marriage, see. All right, now, deal with this faulty logic. Simon the Pharisee engages in a faulty logic application of a second-class conditional statement. It is such a blessing that we recently went through the second-class conditional statements in the previous episode. And I don't view that as being coincidental. (laughs) That it's been made very clear that God knows all of the if-you-would-haves-then-this-would-haves approaches of, of, of our lives. If the miracles had been done in Sodom and Gomorrah, had been, uh, the Capernaum miracles had been done in Sodom, they would have repented. He knows the ifs and the would-haves, and he's absolutely true in every if and would-have statement he makes. You and I can't do that. This Pharisee can't do that. Say, as we've said on, on many occasions, you know, if I wasn't a pastor, what would I have done? I don't know. I know what I intended way back when, 20 years ago, but, but who's to say? When you start to examine the ifs and the would-haves, we can't know in our finite perspective. And if we try, we can very quickly go down a, a wrong path, as this man does. If this man were a prophet, he would know. Well, he's wrong. Now, this if is a second-class condition if. He's assuming that it's not true. He's assuming that Jesus is not a prophet. And when he phrases this in his mind, he says, if he were a prophet, and I know he's not, he would know about this prostitute that's kissing his feet. And he would have no part of that. So he has, he has these assumptions that, and both halves are not true, and his overall assumption is not true. So he's very negative. If this man were a prophet, he assumes that to be untrue. He would know, and he's assuming that he doesn't know. But that's also untrue, because Jesus does know who this woman is. He knows who she is. He knows what sort of woman she is. He would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him. And he's real touchy about the touching. All right? That's, the, that's what's really bugging him. It's the externals. It's the appearances. It's the, what would people think? Specifically, what would my fellow Pharisees think? (laughs) Because there's a pecking order here. And that young Saul of Tarsus kid is advancing beyond many of his contemporaries. And there's a huge pecking order here. We've got to be able to maintain this illusion, this holier-than-thou viewpoint of Isaiah 55. All right. If this man were a prophet, so point B, if assumes the condition to be untrue, however you want to write that or sub point B, it is a second class condition. Remember, we went through this first class assumes it to be true. If you are the son of God, turn these stones into bread. Satan assumed the condition to be true. Second class condition is assumed to not be true. If the miracles done in you had been done in Sodom, they would have repented. If you knew who it was that was speaking to you and asked you to give me a drink, you would have asked, and I would have given you springs of living water, or whatnot there in John chapter 4. Those are second class assumed not to be true. Those are the ones that if, but since you didn't, this didn't happen. But if it would have, you would have. God knows those, we don't. If this man were a prophet, it assumes the condition to be untrue. 
He's absolutely rejected. And you wonder if that was the purpose for him inviting Jesus in the first place. Because Nicodemus and, and Joseph of Arimathea and maybe one or two other Pharisees were starting to say, hey, you know what? I think that carpenter, I think that Galilean, I think he's a prophet. Because of the ministry he's having and the fruit that he's bearing and the miracles that he's doing. Certainly none of the Pharisees were doing any miracles. So Nicodemus shows up and says, you've got to be from God. You can't do these miracles otherwise. So now Simon the Pharisee, maybe he's looking into it. Doesn't really believe it. And uh, he's probably going to suffer a bit for hosting this party in the eyes of his fellow legalists. And so what does he do? He makes sure that he hosts the party so he can look into it. But he hosts the party in such a way that everybody knows that he's doing so graciously to an inferior. He's not, according to Jesus, any status remotely approaching equality with a Pharisee. So in, in, the, in that order, see, I mean, when, when you're looking at Pharisees and Essenes and Sadducees and Herodians and all the other, the, the, of course, Pharisees are at the top in their own mind. And they would be bitterly in, in conflict with the Sadducees, but at least a Sadducee was still... Uh, of, of the priestly tribe. At least he was still serving the Lord in their flawed way. Certainly better than the Herodians who were compromising with, with Herod. Certainly better than uh, some of these other groups. Sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes and all the rest. So when he brings Jesus in, it's as an inferior. He's making that very clear. And he's gauging whether or not this... Galilean carpenter is, is really a prophet. And the first opportunity to say, no, he's not a prophet, he jumps at it. Okay? I'm sure you've met people like this. They, they're not exactly sure, but they suspect. And, and because they so badly want it to be true, the very first bit of evidence they find that points that direction, aha, conclusive. I knew it. Why? Well, because they really, really wanted for that assumption to turn out to be true. So he, he's bringing him in to see if he's a prophet, but the first chance he gets, aha, I knew he wasn't a prophet. Look at him. That prostitute's kissing his feet and wiping him with her hair and all the rest. No Pharisee would let her touch him. See? So, it's a second class. Assumed to not be true. Point C is also assumed to not be true. It completes the assumption of the second class conditional statement. He would know. But the Pharisee here has concluded that Jesus doesn't know. The Pharisee here has absolutely certain that Jesus is clueless. So under sub point C, he would know, completes the assumption. It completes the assumption. It's a faulty assumption. That the conditional statement is second class, that it's untrue. That he would know. Well, he doesn't know. He doesn't know. Now, there's two elements to this. There's two elements to this, and uh, we'll get as far as we can in this. But I want to skip ahead. There's... See if I can skip ahead. Let's try. Yeah. You haven't gotten D or the, any of the subpoints yet, but 
he, this was his conclusion. Simon concluded that Jesus couldn't be a prophet. Why? Because he apparently didn't know the woman's heart. But see, what happens here, he, while he's thinking this in his mind, Jesus is then going to speak to him and make it very clear that he knows Simon's heart. <laughs> do, do you recognize the irony in that? How, how, how funny that is? Here he is thinking to himself, can't be a prophet. He can't read her mind. He doesn't know what kind of person she is. He can't look upon her heart. Remember, only God looks upon the heart, but spirit-filled prophets were given that insight as a part of their office, as a part of their ministry. I'll give you some verses next week to, to look at some of that. So only God looks upon the heart, but spirit-filled prophets, Old Testament prophets, were given that kind of insight. And so here, here's this Pharisee saying, he can't be a prophet. He doesn't know her heart. And then the very next thing out of Jesus' mouth points out that he, was, he knows this Pharisee's heart. He knew what he was thinking. And so if it could dawn on him, <laughs> wait a minute, you read my mind. You knew what I was thinking. Well, if you, if you knew what I was thinking, that means you're a prophet. Even though what I was thinking was, you don't know what I'm thinking, and you don't know what she's thinking, and so you're not a prophet. It's, it's classic. It's, it's, it's an irony here that, that's actually kind of amusing. So Simon concluded that Jesus couldn't be a prophet because he apparently didn't know the woman's heart. Jesus' message, though, makes it very clear that he thoroughly knows Simon's heart. He knows who this woman is. He knows who Simon is. He knows everything that's going on in this episode. Not because he's tapping into divine omniscience, but because he is a spirit-filled, anointed prophet of, of, of the Lord. And this was standard operating procedure for prophets. See, and when, when, Samuel, when Saul shows up looking for his father's donkeys and whatever, Samuel's already there. He knows who Saul is. He knows what's going on. He says, don't worry about the donkeys. They're already back home. I know who you are. You're the son of Kish. You're a son of Benjamin. You're going to be the, the king. Why did, how did Samuel know all of that? Part of the prophetic office. That's right. All right. Let me back up to where we just were. Under point C, because there's some subpoints here. First of all, there's two things he was expected to know. Who and what sort. Who and what sort? Two things. First of all, there's no need to introduce yourself to any legitimate prophet. He knows who you are. All right? He knows who you are. It's interesting when the Lord gives briefings to prophets. They wake up each morning reporting for duty. What, what work do I have to do today? And the Lord will say, well, about lunchtime, by this well, a man's coming by. Looking for his father's donkeys. So he gets a briefing. Kind of like, if you ever watch that old Hill Street Blues, or there's probably more modern examples. I don't watch TV. But years ago, and, and every episode would start off with briefing, with a, with a briefing. And, and, and the police officers would show up for their shift and they get a briefing. What to expect? What's going on out there on the streets? What is the, with the previous shift? What are they passing on? What's going on? You know, well, there's this drug dealer, there's this thing, there's this, you know, watch out in this neighborhood and shots were fired over here and whatever. And you get a briefing, you know what to expect, and then you go out to work. And the sergeant says, you know, be careful out there. Okay? Well, well this was the nature of the prophet in the Old Testament times. You know, when, uh, when uh, 
Philip went and got Nathanael and said, we found the Christ. And Jesus says, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no guile. And Nathanael said, how did you know me? He said, well, before, when you were under the tree, I saw you, I knew you. Okay. So he would know if he was a real prophet, he would know. You don't have to introduce yourself to a prophet. Not only who, but also what sort, what sort of woman, what sort, what kind. And here's where the legalist falls apart, because legalism demands that you start categorizing people into different boxes. See, oh, she's a sinner. Have nothing to do with her. She's a tax collector. Nothing to do with her. See, we do the same thing today. Legalists do the same thing today. Oh, well, you know, this person's a Pentecostal, charismatic. I don't know anything to do with them. Are they redeemed? Are they part of the body of Christ? Then they're in Christ. They're the body, same as you. <laughs> but we categorize people and we get condemning. So I'll pick up on this issue next week. And then we will uh, go through the remainder of this episode. We've got some good ground covered tonight, this morning. Appreciate it, but I do have to stop promptly as I have an appointment this uh, in 30 minutes. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for your faithfulness, for your mercy, love, and grace. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.